coming out of what we just experienced. Uh, I hope that if you leave with nothing else today, uh, you would leave with the truth sinking past your head, deep into your heart, that you belong. That all of us, no matter who we are, where we come from, or what we've ever done, because of what Jesus has done, can belong to him and belong to each other. And in a place like this, that you can know, that you know, that you belong. That you belong. Hey, uh, I wanted to start off this morning's talk uh, just by saying uh, thanks to everyone for, uh, if you were here last week, celebrating the 20-year staff anniversary of Mike Krause and myself. Uh, the way that the service ended with that uh, kind of tribute shout out video and uh, the prayer for those of us who were in St. Catharines, uh, that was surprising and very special. And uh, the cake across all of our locations, well, that was just sort of the icing on the cake or the cake on the cake or whatever. But uh, it was a very special day uh, for Mike and myself for sure uh, later that evening. I'd been told by Becky to not have any plans uh, by 7 o'clock that night. And uh, around that time, some teammates picked us up and uh, picked up Mike and Krista as well and brought us to uh, a surprise reception where all of our staff and elders and spouses and uh, some other key leaders from our community and beyond uh, who've been part of this ride for the better part of that 20 years uh, all joined together for uh, a celebration. And uh, I call it a celebration. In actuality, it was probably more of a roast, uh, to be frank. Uh, people had quite a bit of fun with us, uh, pointing out for hours on end uh, our idiosyncrasies that they've had to deal with for the last two decades. Uh, one in particular that I found uh, quite humorous was uh, the contrast in our wardrobes. They had a number of video, uh, a number of photos of all of the different styles that Mike has gone with, uh, especially in this environment where uh, he has preached. And uh, it's basically all the different ways that Krista has dressed him over the years, just so we're clear. Uh, and then they contrasted that with the consistency of wardrobe that I have shown year after year after year. And I learned that uh, the alternating of the striped collared shirt and the v-neck sweater, and that's it, that, that degree of fashion is... Uh, I guess technically known among many of you as uh, unfashion. And so a uh, point taken, and I'm going to, you know, in the next 20 years, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I thought that I would go with the, uh, the plain t-shirt look today and really, uh, really kind of spice things up, uh, considering that, you know, that's, that's about my, the, the fullness of my change capacity. So we had a, we had a good laugh about that, but... Uh, in reality, this season has been a season of reflection for me, thinking uh, not just about how little my wardrobe has changed, but about how much everything else pretty much has. And uh, one of the things that I've really kind of reflected on and asked myself is, in light of all that's changed, what, other than my wardrobe, I guess, what hasn't? Or maybe more specifically, you know, what has remained the same in this entire 20-year run that in a lot of ways has driven much of the change that we have been able to experience and enjoy or put in more of a future orientation, 
what is it that has been constant that if we can continue to consistently trust in, we'll continue to deliver an even more overwhelming experience of God's activity? That's kind of been the question that's been rolling through my head in this uh, last season. And as I've reflected on it, there have been a, a number of phrases that have kind of been consistent around here over the years that have bubbled to the surface. And it's, it's those phrases that I, I wanted to, to share with you today. So the first of these phrases was one that I feel like we used from the get-go that has continued to be language that we've used uh, on and off today. And it goes something like this. It's fairly simple. It says, if the Bible says it, we're doing it. If the Bible says it, we're doing it. And in that, in that phrase, there's actually uh, sort of two ideas. The, the first is that around here, we actually believe that this book is the inspired word of the God of the universe. That the Bible is God's word to us. As it says in Psalm 119, verse 105, that God's word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We actually believe that around here and always have. We believe that God, by his spirit, has inspired the writing and the formation and orchestration of what we know as the Bible today. And just to develop this thought a little bit, because we've learned some things over the years, especially when we started to, to get some more formal training in how to actually you know, study and, and teach the Bible, uh, we began to realize that, that God probably didn't take each of the biblical authors and put them into temporary epileptic seizures while he had writing instruments in their hands so that they could concoct what he intended for them to say. No, that this was actually a partnership between the spirit of God inspiring people and conscious people deliberately addressing audiences in their day and trying to say specific things to them through specific phrases and specific, you know, sentences, through specific literary styles, in specific times in history, to specific people, in specific contexts, for specific reasons. And unless you're willing to do the interpretive work to discover what the original author, by God's spirit, intended to say to their original audience, then you know, you're probably not necessarily hearing as well from God as God intends through his word. That, that in short, we've learned that there's a more right and a less right way to approach the scriptures when you believe that they are God's divinely inspired word for us. And so that's half of what it means by, you know, if the Bible says it, we're doing it. Part of it is figuring out what the Bible actually says. The other half then is the doing of it. What it says in James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You know, we've consistently tried to revisit you know, issues and questions that we've had and try to say, what, what did the scriptures say about this? And as we've discovered that, we've tried to then figure out how does that apply in our day? What, how can we orient our lives around that to a greater degree? And that two-step of what did the scriptures really say about this? And then what does this really mean for us? That's kind of been the two-step of the dance that we've danced for now some two decades, if not beyond. See, around here, um, we don't want to be a community that, as they say, just continues to cut off the ends of the roast. Do you know what I'm referring to when I use that phrase? 
You know, it comes from an old story where, you know, a little kid is watching their parent prepare dinner and they cut off the ends of the roast. And they say, why do we cut off the ends of the roast? They say, well, because that's how you make a roast. That's why you always, that's how we've always done it. And they say, well, why do we do that? And they weren't satisfied with the answer. And so they asked the parent's parent and the grandparent said, well, you know, you cut off the ends of the roast because that's how you make a roast. You're, that's how you do it. It's how you're supposed to do it. And they still were unsatisfied with that answer. So eventually the answer, they, they asked the great-grandparent. The great-grandparent said, well, the only reason I ever cut off the ends of the roast is because my oven and my pan were too small to fit the whole roast. And I had to reduce it in size. And you realize that some things simply happen because of the propagation of tradition where we've never actually asked the question of why. Why we would do that. How, you know, how would that apply in our day and age. And so over the years, we've consistently done that. We've consistently asked why. Why do we do this? Why, why would we take this approach? What would be the best way to do this? What does God want to say in this particular situation? And, and ask you know, what the Bible says about this and then try to do it. I remember asking why our process for baptizing people was you know, sort of disproportionately burdensome at a time early on in people's faith or why we were governed a certain way back in the day as a church only to revisit the scriptures and then change those kinds of processes and structures. You know, over the years, we've looked at what the Bible has said about God's heart for the poor and especially the global poor and radically changed the way that we do ministry and the way that our church works. We've even relocated ourselves, you know, back in 2003 and four, we relocated our church building to put ourselves in proximity to people in need because of what God was teaching us at the time. And all the while we've had this, you know, what does the Bible say? Because if God says it, we're doing it kind of approach. And these days, that's no different, gang. We continue to look around and say, what's going on? And what does the Bible have to say around, about this? And, you know, given what it says, what, what can we do differently? You know, these days, as one example, I know we're looking around at all of the division, all of the division that's within the Christian church and all of the division and even the polarization of the Christian church with the watching world seems to be growing at an all-time high. And we're saying, why well, does that have to be? Why is that? And what would the scriptures say about that? You know, especially when you look at a God who defines himself as love, who sends his son in love to teach a great commandment of love, where a faith in him is described as only mattering when it expresses itself in love. You know, New Testament writers say that the only thing that really counts is love. If you don't have love, you don't have anything else at all. In light of all of this division, and we've been coining this phrase around here called love beyond belief, asking what that would look like in a community like ours to live itself out to a greater degree. And we're going to continue asking those kinds of questions, not just cutting off the ends of the roast and behaving the way the world of the church has always behaved, but asking why. And does it have to be that way? And what do the scriptures say? And what does that mean to us? Because if the Bible says it, we're doing it. We want to be a people as we move forward that are committed to subjecting ourselves to the truth of God's timeless word. Another phrase that's been relevant around here uh, for years, if not decades, goes something like this. The church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. The church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. It basically recognizes that the story of God throughout human history didn't end with the life of Jesus 
on earth. In fact, in many ways, it just began. Look at what it says in chapter 1, verse 1 of a book in the New Testament called the book of Acts. It says there, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, understanding, you've got to appreciate what the original author is intending to say to the original audience. Appreciate that the original author here wrote one of the biographical accounts of Jesus' life that are recorded in the Bible, what we know as the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is saying here that in his former book, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, recording all of his miraculous activity and all of what he taught about the kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in heaven. And he implies here that that's only just the beginning and that this next book continues the story of all that Jesus would continue to do. And the reason Luke believes that or the reason he sees life that way is because of the eyewitness accounts that he was able to record in his first book of the miraculous resurrection of Jesus and the making available of his risen Holy Spirit to invade the lives of forgiven believers and empower other people to live out the life and legacy and carry on the mission of Jesus in a multiplied way. That's what Jesus always intended when he was walking the earth. He told his original disciples this, recorded in, among other places, um, chapter 16 of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. In verse 18, it says that Jesus says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all of the powers of hell will not conquer it. He says, on people like you, I am going to empower you to carry on my mission and legacy and build this thing that I'm going to call the church that is going to bring my redemptive hope to all people across the world for all time. As Pastor Bill Hybels has often said, the local church is the hope of the world. That Jesus never designed, you know, people to find the truest things in life through anything outside of the redeemed, empowered people of God manifesting his life. He never intended wisdom to ultimately be discovered and found through education or academia. He never intended for wholeness or healing or wellness to ultimately be discovered through medicine or chemicals or hospitals. Never intended fulfillment to ultimately be discovered through entertainment. Never intended wealth or riches to ultimately be what provides true soul significance and satisfaction. Never intended for government to be the thing we trusted in to deliver world peace. Isn't that good news in a time like this? He only ever always intended for his risen life to be the hope that provided people with a future both now and for all eternity and he intended that hope to be distributed in one way through the spiritually empowered people who were following him personally and together that the church the the empowered people of God are God's plan a and there is no plan b and so for us around here what that's meant is that If that's true, we want to give the very best of the rest of our lives to that cause and to advancing God's purposes in the world through us. You know, over the years that that that's meant, 
you know, people laying lucrative careers on the altar in order to invest the fullest amounts of the best of their time into what God's doing among us in a, a fuller time kind of a way. It's involved, it's involved big, big financial commitments, the most significant of which was back in 2003 when we relocated our church and started out again in St. Catharines where 101 or so families contributed on average $25,000 each over a three-year period to try to make that dream come true and to put ourselves in proximity with more people in need. You know, over the years, there's been all those kinds of stories. You think about, from a financial perspective, just how much the allocation of our resources has changed. Where these days, for the last couple of years, we've been able to say that it's shifted to the point where now over 50% of the dollars that we collect and spend go into fostering, of all things, the compassion and justice aspects of the lifestyle of full devotion that we're inviting people into and fostering as a church. We've even opened homeless shelters 24-7, 365 days a year in church buildings to take risks, all confident that God is at work because of that timeless promise to build his church through people who will give their lives to it. And when I look around our church these days and I look forward, I, I, I don't see this slowing down anytime soon. I look at our Vineland location and I see, you know, new staff joining that team. People like Carrie Jones, people like Nate Dirks, high capacity leaders who love God and want to give the best of the rest of their one and only life to advancing his cause as part of one of our locations, serving all of us across all of them. You know, I, I look at our Welland location and I think about the funds that have already been raised and are still to be raised in purchasing this new building that we've been miraculously able to secure that's not just going to allow us to gather more stably and comfortably, but ultimately going to be able to serve as a playground for us to establish the kind of relationships where friendship can truly make a difference with the struggling families that God has put us in proximity to serve. You know, in St. Catharines, we've been serving the homeless for some time. I know that there's conversations swirling around there these days about how to do that better, how to do that with more dignity and how to do that perhaps in an even more expanded way. And some rudimentary ideas and meetings have started to happen where people have started to dream about what it would look like to revolutionize a more full service kind of center. Yes, with emergency host hostel services, but maybe also with detox and some housing first support and some transitional housing and affordable housing all together in one, all together proximal to the church so that we can foster the kind of relationships that provide God's life reciprocally in each other as we've experienced so often before. We're as pumped about the future as we've ever been because as we root ourselves in God's timeless word, we can invest ourselves in his timeless promise to build his church in a way that is truly unstoppable. And when that starts to happen, there's a third phrase that begins to emerge. It's probably the simplest, but perhaps the most profound as I've reflected on it over the years. It goes something like this. It's not about me. It's not about me. See, when you root yourself in God's word and say, you know, if the Bible says that I'm going to do it and you root yourself in God's promises and believe that the church is his plan A and there is no plan B. You start to see your life differently. It starts to orient 
differently. In fact, at a personal level, as you begin to follow Jesus, that's what happens as you adopt his attitude for your own. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way. When you're following Jesus, you then put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. When a person begins to follow Jesus, their attitude of heart starts to shift and they move away from a self-orientation that is concerned with their own interests and affairs and adopts an other's orientation that advances the condition of other people more than yourself. And as people begin to do that at a personal level and then unite by God's spirit together in this incredible thing called the church, you start to see that happening collectively as well. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2 about the church in the first century. It says in that day, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Back in that day, they were engaged visibly in good deeds. And those good deeds, as we've said before, triggered goodwill. And that goodwill opened people surrounding the church's hearts to the good news. All because they embraced an other's orientation. And what that does collectively is it actually shifts our mindset about what the church fundamentally is. And what it exists to do. Because I think a lot of people, when they, when they think about what the church is, or they think about coming to church on a Sunday morning or whatnot, you know, the, the view of church that they have is that it's this third-party entity that offers things, it offers programming, or it offers events for yourself. That you take advantage of what the church offers for you or for your family. But when you start to appreciate the vision that God has from his word for his church and realize that it's not about me, and it's not about us. You start to realize that the church isn't a third-party entity for us. The church, if we're followers of Jesus, the church is us for the world around us to reach and serve them with the love and life-changing message of Jesus Christ. It's only as you begin to make that mental shift that you can start to really understand why our church has changed in so many ways over the last number of years. And I think back in the earlier days of my time on staff when we were still changing the music style. A lot of churches have gone through that, that shift over the years. You know, churches do that because they want their gatherings to be more relevant and accessible to anyone, not just those who've grown up in the church that are familiar with not just the lyrics, but the styles of more traditional songs. That's one of the shifts that we made over the years. We shifted to a simpler kind of programming where we invite people into a very few key strategic things because we want to free people up to engage in lifestyles that can connect in relationship with people who don't yet know God. We want to give people the space and the freedom to develop those kinds of friendships rather than over busy them with having to attend the church all the time for church programming. 
You know, we made the shift where I've said before, where we relocated to put ourselves in proximity to those in need because we wanted to be the kind of church that if we disappeared, other people would notice because of the way that we're serving them. We made the shift to become a multi-site church so that we could put ourselves in places across the Niagara region that are more convenient for our friends and neighbors to experience what God is up to among us. And we made a shift when we launched those locations to define ourselves, not primarily by the times where we gather on Sundays, but by what we've coined as our anchor causes. The initiatives of compassion and justice that each of our Southridge locations are organized around to make practical, significant differences in the parts of Niagara where God has uniquely placed us. All of those shifts we have made, not necessarily because they provide us greater comfort and you know, luxury. We've made those shifts because they can bless and benefit other people. And when you adopt a personal and then corporate attitude of it's not about us, you really start to appreciate the power of God working through you in significant ways. These days I find myself in these kinds of conversations and it continues to thrill my heart. I was in uh, a couple meetings lately where we were starting to kick around, you know, what it would take for us to reach the next generation for Christ. And the idea emerged of potentially launching a Southridge location specifically by the next generation for the next generation. Now, this is very preliminary. I haven't had any serious conversations about this, but I share this with you this morning only to say that I like that kind of thinking. I like that kind of thinking, not just because of the developmental opportunity it could provide our 20-somethings today to give them the opportunities that I had when I was a 20-something some uh, 20 years ago. Uh, it's not just because it could provide us with an innovation pipeline to do some creative things and try some stuff that the rest of our locations and the rest of the church could benefit from. I like it because it's looking beyond ourselves and says, how can we actually reach and serve a generation that we're not yet reaching and serving effectively enough? It's an not about us way of thinking. I've also appreciated the way that a number of us have engaged in the conversation that we've opened up recently about trying to more effectively serve the LGBTQ community. I know that for some of us, when I use that phrase, our shoulders tighten up. And I've had people ask, in case you've wondered, you know, why we keep mentioning that specific community in environments like this. My answer is the same every time, because I believe that there is a problem. I believe that there is a problem. It's not one of doctrine or difference. It's not of a theological nature. I believe that there is an impact problem where the impact that the Christian church has had and is having on the LGBTQ community is not consistent with the impact that Jesus would have if he were walking in our shoes in our day and age. I believe that. I, I believe that to the majority of the LGBTQ community, their experience of the church and of Christianity in general is one of harshness, judgment, condemnation, and exclusion. And they intuitively know that if Jesus were walking in the Niagara region today, that he would engage them no matter what he theologically understood or believed about them. He would engage them in inclusive love and want to be in relationship with them. 
They feel a gap exists. And the fact that that gap exists in the impact that the church has on this community, uh, that matters to me. That's a big deal to me. Uh, If you know me at all, you know that those kinds of gaps have always mattered to me and have always been a big deal to me. Shared with you many of you a number of times that one of the big reasons I got into ministry in this way was because of this trajectory defining conversation that I had some 20 years ago with my own dad. Wondering why he wasn't, you know, as into faith as I thought he could be. And he was explaining how his day at work went when he was mediating a strike of school teachers. And the Christian parents from that school spent the day driving by, throwing tomatoes at the striking teachers. And when he looked me in the eyes and said, what would I want anything to do with that? It was the first time that I'd ever palpably experienced the chasm that so often exists between Jesus and followers of Jesus. As Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And and, and I made a commitment then that, you know, I was going to give my life to one thing, to to trying to close that gap so that at least our church could paint a clear and compelling, captivating and integrity picture of the person of Jesus to the watching world who are intuitively looking to the church to paint that picture. And instead of, you know, compounding that chasm, I was going to try to close that gap. I was struck some 20 years ago by that conversation with my dad. I had a very similar a heart-striking moment just a few months ago on this issue all over again. Um, One Saturday this summer, uh, my daughter's soccer team was in a soccer festival. And uh, they were playing two games on a Saturday at Club Roma. And because we lived just just around the corner from Club Roma, we had invited some of Addie's soccer friends and their families to come over for uh, a swim in between games to kind of cool off. Thought that was a cool idea. Well, as the, the festival date approached, a friend of my wife's called her and happened to be a mutual friend of the mom of one of the kids on Addie's soccer team. And this friend, this mutual friend, was calling because the mom was kind of freaking out about coming over to our house. And she shared with Becky the backstory that the mom has since given me permission to share with all of you this morning, that... The reason she was kind of freaking out was because since this little girl could talk and express herself, she has always understood herself to be a boy. Now I'm guessing that across our locations, this is going to get real quiet real fast. And I just want to make the disclaimer that transgenderism, the T in LGBTQ, is not something that I would ever profess to have a whole lot of expertise in. And the whole dynamic and the science and even the debate around what they call gender dysphoria is not something that I would be familiar with confidently enough to, to profess any sort of expertise. This is, this is newer territory for me, admittedly. But it became territory that this family had to start navigating through as soon as this little girl could talk. And in the past number of months, as this girl's been growing up, um, they've been deciding together to allow her to express herself in the way that she most automatically and naturally identifies, to begin to identify herself as a boy. 
And so this mom was freaking out in part because they were going to come over swimming. And when the other kids were going to be swimming in bikinis, they were going to be swimming in board shorts and a surf shirt because that's how they were more comfortable swimming. The reason, though, that she was so uncomfortable wasn't just because she was worried about the kids, you know, teasing her or ostracizing or, you know, kind of making fun or, you know, maybe shunning her on the, on the team. That, that, certainly that would be uh, the mom's concern. The mom's greater concern, as it was expressed, was because they knew that Addie's dad was a pastor and that Addie's family were part of a Christian church. Now, I don't know what all of you know about the lives of people in the LGBTQ community. I'm not going to profess to know a whole lot. But all I learned this summer was that there was a family that was terrified to come over to my house because I was associated with the Christian church on behalf of their child, even though their child is one of my daughter's closest friends. And I got to tell you, you know, after Becky assured this mutual friend that they would receive nothing but warmth and acceptance and love from our family that afternoon, and as she assured the mom of the same thing, and as they came over for a swim, you know, as I watched all the kids swim and play together, my heart was just wrecked. You know, I've thrown up on the screen here a, a photo of the two of them. This is at the Toronto FC game a few weeks ago when their soccer team escorted the TFC onto the field. This is my daughter, Adeline, uh, on the right and her good friend, Evan, on the left. And I don't know what you see if you, if you look at them, but I know what I see and I know what I saw that day when they were swimming together. I saw some kids, some cute kids, <laughs> that are all uniquely expressing the image of the God who loves them and who made them. And as I thought, while they're having all this fun, as I thought about the terror and the anxiety that that mom was feeling on behalf of their kid to come over to my house because it might not be safe for them, I was just overwhelmed with the sense that what this family is desperate for is a group of people to wrap the love of God around them to wrap the loving arms of God around them. That's what they're desperate to experience these days. You know, they're desperate to experience understanding and empathy as they navigate a life that none of them expected or probably would have chosen. You know, what, what they're looking for is, is appreciation and, and kind of company in this very lonely journey of trying to figure out things on their own and even grieve the loss of a life that they formerly thought that they knew. What they're most desperate for are people to surround them with support and strength and, and encouragement as they make very difficult trajectory shaping decisions one way or another for the future of their family knowing that the stakes in transgendered kids are exponentially higher than all kinds of other kids when it comes to things like anxiety and depression and even self-harm or even the consideration of suicide. This is real stuff that I just know and felt that they're desperate to experience the love of other people and the most and more importantly, the love of God. And it got me wondering, watching them swim in my backyard pool that day, who will be those people? 
Who will be those people that are willing to surround them with the love of Christ? You know who they'll be? There'll be people who are willing to say, what does God's word say about this? And what God's word says, we're going to do, we're going to try to live out. You know, even if it kind of creates some anxiety in some change. It takes people who are going to believe that the only hope that we have to offer the world is through the empowered people of God in his church, that God only has one plan A and there is no plan B. It's going to be the kind of people who are willing to live beyond themselves and say, you know what, it's not about me. It's about 10-year-old kids finding safety and inclusion as they prepare to navigate their teenage years in probably a more disproportionately difficult way than many of us. 20 years ago, I got into ministry because I wanted to create a church that someone like my dad could finally see and know Jesus. And I joked with people that the day that my dad got baptized was the day that I could retire. Four years into my ministry life, God gave me that gift of standing beside my own father and baptizing him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was one of the most incredible experiences I've been able to enjoy in the last 20 years. But I've shared with many of you that I realized in that moment, and it's the reason I didn't retire back then, I realized in that moment that there are other people wanting to feel what I got to feel. There are other people who have dads and moms and coworkers and classmates and you know neighbors and teammates and siblings and kids even 10-year-old kids who are desperate to see a community of people express Jesus enough that they would be able to run to his loving arms and not from him and i wonder what it's going to take for us to be that community today And if that freaks you out, if that gives you a sense that our future is uncertain and you're anxious about that, I want to let you in on a little secret that I've probably felt for 20 years, but I've probably never said. I'm a little anxious and uncertain about the future too. I always have been. I was anxious and uncertain about the future at 24. I'm anxious and uncertain about the future at 44 because I don't know what the future holds for us personally or for us as a community. I just know this. I know that when you are willing to anchor yourself in God's timeless word, and when you are willing to invest yourself in God's timeless promises to build his church, and when you are willing to kind of orient or align your life around God's timeless way of orienting towards the other, God shows up with his timeless faithfulness in incredible ways. And if you and I and us together want to see God continue to move in even greater, more spectacular ways that are exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine, we have to remain faithful to him. And if you and I will commit to continuing to use these phrases, if the Bible says it, we're going to do it. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. It's not about me we are going to experience God's incredible faithfulness among us and beyond us again and again and again. And if that's your heart cry this morning, I invite you to bow your head and to pray with me that that would be the case. Let's pray together. God in heaven, you know that we want you to show up in incredible ways in the future of our lives in our church. 
We want to see you move more spectacularly than we've ever seen you move before. God, we want to put our faith in you to do that now, understanding how your faithfulness responds. That you are looking, as your scriptures say, across the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully yours, who will be willing to subject ourselves to the truth of your word and apply it practically to our lives. We're willing to invest ourselves in your one and only cause on planet earth, the building and propagating of your people, the church. And we're willing to submit ourselves to the interests of others, living for others instead of just ourselves. God, I pray that we would be those people. And in doing that, I pray that we would paint a clearer picture of who you are to the lost and broken world around us so they can see you more clearly for who you are and people would run to you and not from you. Make us those people by making those choices, God. And as we do, pour out your timeless faithfulness on us and help us to give you all the glory and credit when you do. We've seen you move mountains and I know that we're gonna see you do it again as we give our hearts to you. So help us to do that starting right now. In Jesus' powerful, loving name, we pray together. Amen.